Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Juan Pinellas, the co-founder and principal of E360 Power, an Austin, Texas-based hedge fund that trades energy and specifically electricity futures. Juan talks about the track record of the fund being in place for more than 12 years now and having an average return net back to investors of 35% per annum with a very low correlation to traditional assets such as equities, for instance. We talk about what's driving the volatility in the market, which is something they like. We also talk about uh, the other geopolitical factors that are influencing and the move to carbon zero, which that he believes is all tailwinds for the industry. Please remember that this podcast is not designed, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice before considering any investments. And please remember to keep your emails coming in, your suggestions of who we might talk to and what areas of the market that people are interested in are very valuable. Keep it coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Juan, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Perhaps you could, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, give us a bit of a background to yourself, who you are and what you do. Absolutely. My name is Juan Benedas. I'm one of the founders of E360 Power, which is a hedge fund in the US that trades uh, primarily uh, electricity in the forward markets, as well as um, other uh, elements that are heavily associated to the electricity production and uh, distribution in the US. Um, I, uh, the firm has been around for uh, now 13 years. And um, before that, we were engaged in, in other ventures in the same space, lower than that. So one, can you perhaps give us a, a little insight to what's, bring, what's brought you to trading uh, power or electricity uh, in a hedge fund style? What, what, what led you to that? I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So I started in the 90s trading, um, uh, not trading, but associated with uh, metals in South America. Uh, it was um, aluminum smelting operations. And I was doing finance work at the time. And, uh, and we owned a lot of facets in the energy space. So early on, I, I got involved in, uh, in energy aspects from um, hydro plants to uh, gas turbines to combine uh, cycles to procure the gas for those gas turbines, the transmission line that connected the hydro plant to the smelter plant. So all of that was uh, sort of my upbringing. Eventually moved to the U.S. to get my MBA. And in 2002, I, uh, um, it, it, the whole energy um, sort of um, the regulation uh, had gotten going now for uh, a couple of years at the time. And I joined the space, which was um, in an interesting moment in time. It was it was right around the time Enron was going away, and uh, and the merchants were um, sort of cornered uh, to kind of go back to assets. And a lot of the financial institutions, namely every bank that you can imagine, was jumping into the space. At the same time, some hedge funds were starting, and I quickly figured that that was the way to go. So I joined someone else's hedge fund in around 2005 worked with them for a few years. And in 2009, we started with our own, uh, which is this firm that we're talking about. 
Now, my, uh, my uh, business partner and other founder of the firm is studying the agricultural side of things. And um, like in 97, when there weren't any power traders in the U.S. or electricity traders in the U.S., a lot of them came from the agricultural side of the commodity markets. And that's, that's his case, as well as uh, uh, the third partner in the firm, which, is, uh, uh, recently, uh, which has recently joined us. Uh, so anyways, that is sort of the background or how we got to, to this space. Um, what has changed though, uh, a lot of things have changed. I mean, we have gone through lots of cycles in this space and um, some good, some not so good, um, but we seem to always have found uh, opportunities. What has dramatically changed in the last few years though, is that um, the opportunity set is perhaps as complex and, and and, uh, and rich as we have, you know, as as, well, as, as anything we've ever seen in, the, in this in this in, in this arena, it's it's dramatically changed in a very brief period of time. And uh, all you have to do is look at energy prices around the world to to sort of uh, verify that notion. Yeah, I'd like to dig into that in a moment. But before we get into the weeds on that, can we maybe just back up a little bit and have you talk a little bit about E360, the firm? Uh, I think I'm talking to you today from uh, uh, Austin in Texas, uh, a great town that I visited, a great party town and uh, a great uh, growing town having uh, Dell there, uh, etc. Um, can, can you give us a little idea or listeners a bit of a sense to the firm, the size, the scale, how it operates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, it is it is formally a, a hedge fund, and that's uh, the format under which we bring uh, most of our onshore or offshore uh, in investors into into the into the action. And we also have some uh, uh, single managed accounts, which is essentially a different format under which you can um, trade money for other people. Uh, now, uh, as you said, we're based in Austin, Texas. Uh, there is a high concentration of energy trading in the state of Texas, not particularly in the city of Austin, uh, mostly in Houston here in the U.S., but uh, uh, we are uh, surrounded by, uh, by the largest concentration of energy trading uh, in, in, in the U.S. Now, the, um, the firm, um, as, 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 as I said a little before, uh, concentrates in electricity trading. Uh, inevitably, there is a lot of association to natural gas, and uh, natural gas is part of the strategy as well. And in recent times, uh, carbon products or emission associated or emission um, products have become also uh, um, a, a bit of this strategy. In uh, in, in in another um, or other part of, uh, of of interest for the firm has been essentially the. Uh, the growth of the LNG export market in the U.S. and the intertwined uh, nature of what is now the gas trading around the world. Inevitably, that has become part of the strategy. Um, it is a, a fascinating market, uh, complex, full of geopolitical uh, aspects that were uh, strange to our space only a few years ago that are now uh, of key importance. So as with that in mind, we have been exposed to uh, some European gas trading as well. And one for many of our listeners, they'll be familiar with investing in property, familiar investing in equities, shares and bonds and debt. Uh, for many of them, the concept of trading electricity 
is new or unusual. Can you explain to people how you go about doing that? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I, I fully sympathise with her, with with that um, sort of uh, lack of familiarity from the general public uh, when it comes to electricity trading. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not different from any other forward market. Um, at this point, uh, all the contracts that we trade in electricity are futures that are listed exchanges. So you can think of them as you could uh, when you're thinking about crude oil or corn or orange juice or any other commodity. So there is a forward curve that settles every day. Um, it, 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 the, the, the products that we trade go through exchanges. There's two or three of them. Uh, Intercontinental Exchange, the CME, old NYMEX Exchange, and there's a new one called Nodal. Um, so everything is extremely transparent in that sense. Um, we do not have any discretion over how to find, how, how we find you all, our positions on any given day. Every mark comes from the exchanges, like it would be the case with the stock market or uh, the currency market or anything like that. So it's, it's a bit strange in the sense that perhaps Electricity is, is that one commodity that you cannot put inside a barrel or you're going to put uh, in a pallet or it, it's harder to sort of uh, uh, visualize, but it's not different. It's still calories or, or joules or BTUs or mail, what hours. We are trading energy and it, it is in the form of electricity. So as strange as it might seem, uh, it's still not very different from the rest of it. Now, there is one uh, particularity, and that is that uh, electricity is the one commodity that you cannot uh, store in a meaningful way. Of course, you can store it, mean, all you have to do is look at your phone, and you have some energy stored in there in that little battery, or if you drive an electric vehicle, you're storing some energy as well. But at the wholesale level, at the green level, you're not really storing electricity. So that creates a lot of cash volatility. That is a bit of a peculiarity of our market. Uh, other markets are. Uh, you know, more predictable and, uh, you know, the, 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 the storability or the nature of being able to put it in a shelf or take it out of the shelf when prices move. Um, so it smooths the nature of them. But we have a very seasonal forward curve with peaks in summers and winters. And that is in the shoulder months. And we have a very uh, marked hourly profile inside of the day. If you want to dissect your trading to the hours or to the minutes, you'll have some peaks uh, at some points of the day. Uh, so it's um, it's rather volatile in the front of the curve. But as you go out in the in the forward curve, you'll find volatility normally under that of other commodities. So when you're trading forwards uh, or, or futures like we do, uh, it's not really that different from anything else in the space. And you're trading futures contracts exclusively? We trade future contracts and options of those futures. And in a, in a clear format. And you're so, using that in a, a speculative manner rather than a hedge, hedging uh, degree? For us, that is correct. I mean, we are not a, a natural long or we're not a consumer with a natural uh, sort of short position. Uh, we are in the space as speculators uh, in search of returns. The nature of what we do in the fund is, uh, uh, is, is a fundamental, was a fundamental um, um, research-oriented uh, trading, meaning we, we sit down, we do our homework, we try to figure out 
the elements of the supply and the demand of these markets and how things balance. And with that, we form views about relative value ideas or sometimes directional ideas uh, in different parts of the curve and different parts of the nation. Um, the other thing that I probably need to point out is that the power markets are rather fragmented. So um, to start with, the U.S. is divided in three regions uh, that barely connect electricity from one to the other. So you have the east, you have the west, the Rockies in between, and then you have Texas separate from the rest of them. So all these markets tend to behave differently. Uh, even inside some of these footprints, let's say the eastern interconnect, you will have big differences. And even some spots or some areas that have not been deregulated like others that will not be able to uh, uh, offer the possibility to do what we do. But uh, there are some robust markets that have been around for now 25 years or so um, that offer a very uh, sort of well thought out set of rules and uh, consistent management from these independent uh, entities that create uh, a, a very uh, sort of reliable uh, market in which trading is, 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 is favored and liquidity can grow. So individually, these markets are not necessarily super deep, but when you start putting them all together, there is the possibility of deploying strategies like ours uh, across the nation in, uh, in a profitable way. And Juan, can you talk a little bit about your track record and your history uh, in, in this strategy? Yeah. So um, we've been um, in this market, as I said, my, my business partner started in the, in the late 90s, trading electricity. I started in the very early 2000s. So we've been doing this for anywhere between 2025 20, or even more in the case of years. And, uh, We've done it in different capacities, but specifically in the company that, that we're now uh, running, and we have now for 13 years, we have had a pretty good run. It has been volatile. Uh, there's no there's no denying of that. It has been a, a bit of a chunky sort of volatility profile, but um, I have some numbers in front of me. So at the end of last month, I mean, we, we're one day away from finishing uh, September here, but at the end of August, this strategy had annualized return of gross returns, that is the 46.9. Um, per annum. So per annum. Over yes. the last 12 years. So that, mm -hmm. is, that is sort of the, 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 the compounded average return of, uh, of gross returns of the firm. So evidently, uh, the alpha is there. Now, um, the other aspect that is very salient of uh, our strategy is that beta is, is, is very, very low. I mean, we, we are a very uncorrelated strategy to Anything you want to throw against, uh, you know, S&P index, uh, even Goldman Sachs commodity index. I have it. I have it also from it. The uh, the GSCI correlation to ourselves is, is minus seven percent. Uh, the S&P 500 correlation to us is minus six percent. So it's extremely low. Um, it's virtually non-existent. So you have a history of uh, of strong alpha, of low correlation. But the volatility is there. So when you look at the volatility of the firm, we are higher than 30%, uh, which means that you should expect um, some big months uh, both ways. Uh, if, if you, if you, what we always tell investors is that they need to be very aware of that 
But at the end of the day, you want the most informed investor possible. There's all kinds of investors, but one that got in and did not understand what was uh, getting in is not your. It's not a good investor. So you want them as informed as possible, and, and we try to mark this up. But one thing we always tell them is like this: you need to size the importance to this for uh, perhaps if you average to this 20, we are a 10 to you. And Juan, how, how do investors handle getting into the fund given that volatility, given the timing of it? Um, you know, obviously your end result can be influenced heavily by the se sequence of those returns. Um, you know, and starting off with a good start is absolutely fantastic, but starting off with a bad start can be very hard to, to recover from. Typically, how do investors tackle that? It, it, investors typically would start with a, with a target amount in mind, and they would, um, the first uh, investment would be only a portion of that. So for instance, if they uh, attempt to be a foreigner investor in the firm, Perhaps the first ticket is only 10. And, and in case things go, you know, if, if things go well, they will slowly add to that or let that growth happen. Uh, but if things go bad, they can, they, can, they, can, they can pause and see how things are evolving or, or in, in to, the, to the extent that this is a better opportunity to enter, they probably will. If, they, if, if, they, if, if, if this sort of uh, uh, pullback gives them pause, they, they will wait until, until they decide this, there is a better time. So it's it's a gradual approach. Um, it's a it's it, they they try to it's like it's like, it's it's not different from from trading. I mean, it's, it's the same approach we would have to trading maybe. So you don't start you you, know, you don't start with a splash bomb in the pool. You know you you get your toes in, try the water, see how it feels, and and slowly build positions uh, uh, as confidence comes uh, comes around. So they have the same approaches as we would to any trade. Sure, one you alluded to at the start, uh, the complexity of the market at the moment, and I could have it a guess uh, with regard to decarbonisation going on globally and geopolitical tensions, particularly what's happened uh, in in Europe, uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, and the focus on energy security. But can you talk in a little bit more detail and and with a much more informed position about what's driving that complexity and and why the opportunity set looks appealing? Well, the, um, I think the, the, the genesis of this is in, is in the energy transition, um, uh, perhaps even the ESG movement, which is a, a bit of a misunderstood word, and, and perhaps we should leave it on the side. Let's just call it energy transition for now. Uh, but there is a, a very high level of consensus around the world um, from the public, perhaps mainly, uh, but also the governments, maybe not all of them at the same time, um, uh, and, uh, and even the private sector, that uh, something has to be done to address uh, climate change. And uh, we need to change the way we consume it, uh, energy, and, and, um, and we need to change the way we produce uh, energy. So there is transition towards electric solutions and away from fossil fuels. And, you know, someone would say, well, okay, well, you're still using fossil fuels to produce electricity. And that is true. That is very true. However, we're also changing that. We're, uh, you know, the renewable uh, sources of electricity um, are growing year by year. And, uh, and the retirement of coal is steadily going, uh, uh, going strong. Coal is going away as a solution. Now, 
um, there has been uh, a huge hiccup in the process uh, uh, we were embarking that has been the conflict in Ukraine and the uh, energy security for uh, for Europe. Uh, that has, uh, I don't want to say, um, it, it has altered the path, certainly. I don't think it has stopped it. In fact, the first uh, reaction from Europe was to say, well, we can, I mean, we still backing away from the path they were going. They said, well, we got to accelerate the transition because that's going to make us less dependent on the, on the, on the natural gas we're getting from, from Russia. Now, whether that is the right decision or not, we will have to see. But um, effectively, the transition is going strong and, and, the, and, the, and the conflict has not uh, stopped. It. Uh, now, it's one thing to be trading uh, as if it was uh, as it was the case at the time, you know, 2025 20, dollars a megawatt hour or euro a megawatt hour in Europe to now see prices uh, nearly 10 times as high as that. Uh, so uh, there will be some consequences in the, in the near term. There will be even consequences probably through the next two or three winters until the LNG map around the world gets reconfigured to be able to uh, sort of go away or look back uh, or look away from Russia and, and, and use LNG uh, uh, in a, as a transitional fuel until the renewable uh, sort of proposition uh, gets, uh, gets fully going. I think that is one aspect that has to be um, brought up. The plan looks great on paper, but there will be a lot of complexities to develop or to, to deploy some of these ideas. Um, for starters, in the U.S., the state of the infrastructure is in a moment or is in a um, situation that requires um, lots of investment in transmission in pipelines and um, and in in it's, it's a long list of things, but the, 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 the point I'm trying to make here is that yes, we have some ideas of how we want to look, but to get there, there will there will have to be a, uh, we will have to go through a lot of developments that are at this point are not necessarily uh, very clear or, or or very certain. Um, to make matters a bit more complicated, the U.S. has a very federal sort of um, uh, regulatory system that creates complexities from the, from the state to state. So we are thinking transmission lines, or we are thinking pipelines across the states, things like that come into into the mix. And understanding the complexity of the, of the regulatory framework uh, is of key importance to to determine whether these ideas are going to come through or they're going to have to be postponed or, or they will take a little longer or something else is going to happen. So it's, um, it's a fascinating time. It's not necessarily um, an easy task. It's, 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 we, we have an enormous uh, amount of work in front of us and understanding how we're going to get there is going to be of key importance. In that sort of turmoil, at least that we see opportunities. Uh, we believe volatility in this space is only growing. We lack uh, complexity in, in our books. Um, 
that explains in part uh, the returns, the recent returns in the triple digit area, area uh, for for the last couple of years. Um, convex or, or, or volatility has um, has gone up a lot, and that has given us great opportunities to to produce returns for our investors. And one, it appears to me that you, in order to be successful in this strategy, you rely on volatility and you rely on markets being inefficient. Can you talk a little bit about why they're volatile and why they are inefficient? You've talked a little bit about some of the reasons and you've alluded to it, but maybe you can put some more color on that for our listeners. Right. So um, that's, uh, I'll, I'll start with, the, with that first notion that I mentioned only a few minutes ago, and that is uh, electricity is that one commodity that you can store. So that creates a lot of uh, sort of cash price volatility. Uh, prices can fluctuate a lot uh, throughout the day. Uh, and and the, there's also a good amount of, uh, of lack of elasticity, meaning if prices go up five times, people probably won't affect too much the way they consume electricity through the day. No one is really asking the question of how much electricity when you flip the switch. It's perhaps that one thing that you buy all the time without really asking the price. You just flip the switch or, or you know, your thermostat uh, tells you to consume, you know, just heat up the house. It's pretty price inelastic. Yeah, it's extremely inelastic. And um, so prices can really move a lot and, and the signal will not necessarily uh, determine a change of behavior from your consumer. And, and therefore, prices can continue to go to make sure that the system is reliable. Uh, so that is in the background. The reliability of the system is, is really what matters to the people dispatching the system and, and eventually uh, creating the price signal that uh, our the countries that we trade, um, are, are driven by. So the um, uh, that's that is part of volatility. Now there is another element uh, here in recent times which has to do strictly with the uh, with this energy transition. We have been retiring a lot of coal units. I think um, I think you call them inertia markets in, the, in in Australia. We call them spinning reserves in the U.S. But these are essentially uh, markets that are not necessarily producing, but they're ready to be called upon if you need them. Uh, coal units used to be great for that, but as you uh, as you send them out or as you you know just retire these units and bring in solar and wind, well, this this new technology, this renewable technology that we so much like, uh, is not the perfect solution for that, or it's not as good a solution for that as, as coal units were. So we're going into 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 markets that now have. Um, um, questionable reserves, let's just say that, um, and, and therefore are trading on thinner um, sort of units that you can call it on at any given time, which creates for it. So the nature of this renewable uh, transition is in fact producing uh, volatility. Um, then there's another element uh, that has been extremely evident this year, which is um, what happened in Europe. Uh, the geopolitical element has entered our space in space uh, that that wasn't there before. We had a space that was immune to headlines. Um, you know, it didn't matter what the Fed was doing. It didn't matter what you know what conflict uh, may have been there. Especially here in the U.S., we were extremely isolated. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So it it would be an extreme situation, but we could see in the U.S. Uh, if the winter is cold and you enter into the winter with 
low reserves, moments in which some parts of the U.S. might need to go to international markets to compete for LNG cargoes. Uh, we are trading the U.S. at high prices, historically speaking, but at massive discount of what Europe is. So if you need to price uh, to Europe to attract those LNGs to make it through the winter, or at least maybe some cold spell, that will create a lot of volatility in our markets too. And I think the curves have been reflecting that. Um, or the price movements of this year, especially, have been reflecting that. So there's a few elements that bring this volatility to space. And, uh, and the way the transition goes, it's not very clear that that is going away. We do not think it's going away. We think it's here to stay, uh, at least for a little while. And one. If you could maybe talk a little bit about, uh, do, do you have any allocation or is there any effect on the portfolio of um, carbon offsets or credits? Um, we have a very small um, uh, sort of exposure at the moment on some of these markets. Um, and that's not because we don't have views, but we, we estimated that, especially in Europe, um, perhaps a little bit of a contagion effect, uh, there has been a higher, than, a higher than normal regulatory risk on some of these markets. And at the end of the day, these markets are sort of uh, man-made. I mean, these are sort of rules that we self-impose on ourselves to, to just, um, you know, be, be cleaner or be, or be, you know, um, to leave less of a of an impact in the planet, but in the middle of a crisis like the one they're having, um, you know, government intervention or halting of some ideas or or pausing on some of these ideas, there runs a higher chance. So we took a little bit of a step back and and paused on on, on the deployment of, uh, of of risk around these notions. But that's not to say that we we will continue to be that way uh, as we go forward. So we are constantly monitoring these ideas. Um, it shouldn't be a huge part of the portfolio, but you know, uh, up to 10% of the portfolio could be uh, uh, so deployed around some of these notions. But we would like to get through the winter before we jumped in again. And one, typically investors like the notion of buying assets that are undervalued uh, or at cheap relative prices based on fundamentals and holding them as they go up and selling them when they think they're overvalued. And uh, you know, even if we reflect over the last couple of years on uh, high growth enterprise software companies where we've seen them run up in value a huge amount, then we've seen that roll off this year as interest rates and, and, and the cost of money has reversed and, and, and the value by which they've been valued has, has changed meaningfully. Um, if people look at this investment, if I'm right in thinking the investment's up about 400%, uh, four times in the last 12 months, why, why would people not be concerned that, hey, this isn't a great time to enter a strategy that's trading futures on energy markets and electricity? Well, it's strategy like ours and, 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 and that of a few competitors uh, are, are fully discretionary. Uh, with, with, with this, I mean, you know, this is not a, a, a long-only index or, or a short-only or, or, or a constant sort of approach to how we trade these markets. So we're constantly combing the curves up and down, left and, left and right, to, to, 
to determine what are the better opportunities. And, and, and turning around the book is a possibility. So um, it, it's, it's, it's not that, yeah, I think it would be a mistake to think that, uh, well, things were too cheap, these guys got in, and now they have run out, they have made a lot of money, and it's too late. Um, things will continue to evolve. Uh, you know, a soft winter uh, in the U.S. Uh, another time, because we have had a soft winter since 1314, so it's like 10 years of, of mild winters for, for us. But a soft winter or a, a strong production will create opportunities from the short side, at least in, the, in, the, in, a, in a brief period of time uh, in the front of the curve. You have to remember that when you look at our curves, uh, natural gas in the U.S., and electricity in the US uh, and in Europe for the matter, uh, these curves are extremely backward-ended, which means that forward prices are a lot lower than, than uh, short-term prices um, by a lot. And, and that is happening in the context of higher interest rates, which, you know, textbook would tell you um, the, the curve has to develop a contango shape, meaning forward uh, valuation should be higher than those in the front. So. There is a lot of relative value opportunities too, and if um, if there were to be a correction in the front, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the things uh, in, the, in the back of the, or the or the or the parts in the back of the curve need to come down with it. I, I could see, I could easily see a situation in which we have softness in the front of the curve and the back is going higher. So it really depends on where you're playing. Um, there is a steel the remnants of what has been the, um, the consequence of regulation uh, post the crisis of 2008. It has taken uh, a lot of players out of our space. So in some parts of the curve, flow dominates the conversation, creating valuations that from a fundamental perspective leave a lot of opportunities on the table for people that uh, know where to book. Uh, so I don't think there is such a thing as a bad time to get in. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we have, we have run internal analysis uh, several times because this question comes up a lot. And it's like investors come in, it's like, well, we want to invest, but what, what is the best time of the year to do this? They say, say well, there's no best time of the year. I mean, any, any, there's no significant difference between one month or the next. There, can, there will also be an opportunity. There will always be an opportunity, sorry. And uh, you just need to be in it uh, or, or you miss it. And Juan, are there any other players similar to yourselves in this space? I think we're pretty unique in the sense that we are uh, primarily, uh, by far, uh, an electricity fund. Um, there haven't been many like, like ours. There has been quite a bit of um, natural gas trading, some very famous names and, 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 and funds in the U.S. Uh, there are currently some very big ones doing that in the U.S. as well. Um, they might have a small presence in, in, in power markets, but um, there haven't been, um, to my knowledge, um, funds trading electricity the size of ours or with the tenure of it, the history of ours in our, in our space. Terrific, Juan. Thank you very much. Uh, look, I, I think we've covered it well, uh, and I think for a lot of our listeners, it'll be an introduction to the space. Um, and of course, congratulations on the fantastic uh, performance of the fund over the years and, and what you've achieved. I really thank you on behalf of our listeners for the introduction that you've given us and the, the education. Uh, I hope you have a great day, and thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. 
Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.